Uh, another another question that I have for you is how do you pronounce this word? I know it's not Sauvignon Blanc because that's something else. What is uh, this? Sauvignon Blanc. Oh no no wait, wait, wait. that sounds the same as the one no, that is not. No 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 there is Sauvignon oh, Blanc. Sauvignon that's the one I Sauvignon no, Blanc so Sauvignon that's yeah Blanc. and there's Sauvignon Blanc which is Sauvignon like, Blanc. Yeah it's it's very similar it's it's tricky. Oh goodness okay. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> De rien. Uh, okay, so... Ensigns to admirals, Porthos to pitbulls. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wall, and today's topic is surely going to be of interest to many of you. It's the science of wine, and helping me along the way will be Dr. Baptiste Journeau, an astrobiologist and mineral physicist at the University of Washington by day, and an expert and pseudo-celebrity wine connoisseur by night. This episode of Strange New Worlds was directly inspired by the brand new Star Trek Picard trailers, which show footage of a retired Admiral Jean-Luc Picard tending to his family's vineyard. Fifteen years ago, today, you let us out of the darkness. You commanded the greatest rescue armada in history. Then, the unimaginable. We'll talk about what's shown in those trailers, as well as the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Family, where Jean-Luc returns to his home village, Labar for some R&R following his incident with the Borg. Ready? Pour a glass, and let's make it so. Why did you leave Starfleet, Admiral? Thank you for joining me on Strange New Worlds, Baptiste. It's so good to talk to you about one of your many areas of expertise. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I know that you're very busy today because you're planning a trip to the Argonne National Lab Mm -hmm. and you're preparing your experiments. So I thought we'd just start off with... What were you just doing in the lab? So, uh, yeah, so thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. Like, uh, I must admit, like, uh, as I told you before, that uh, I've never been too much exposed to Star Trek. But because of you, I've, you know, started to take more and more interest. And uh, so I'm going to have more look into it because that's true. It's not a very popular show in France for some reason. That's a weird thing because there's a French captain. Right, you know, we, we should be much more into it. <laughs> I think so. But he has a British accent. Do you have any feelings about that? Like, why does this French guy speak like he's from England? I don't know. Maybe there is some uh, fun historical fact that happens in the future where we have been, uh, I don't know, convert to uh, <laughs> to the British language later on. I don't know. <laughs> Do you feel I'm okay with that? Or you? <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. No it's too political. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, the idea is that what I'm doing right now is I'm preparing a, an experiment that's going to involve trying to explore like the chemical diversity and uh, all the complexity that is happening in uh, aqueous systems, yeah, the pressure and the temperature that correspond to the interiors of icy moons like Titan, Ganymede and Callisto, uh, and Europa. And so uh, during our work, we have really discovered that 
a lot of stuff are happening at these pressures that we were not expecting at all. So yeah, so it's a very exciting time, but also a very busy time. But yeah, I'm looking forward to the experiment next week. Yeah, so you're discovering and, uh, new things about the material that makes up these very exotic Yeah, yeah, worlds. exactly. We're trying like to make sure we understand when they appear and where, and also characterize them. Like so, so we go beyond just the fact that saying, oh, they are there. We're trying to actually provide physical properties of this material, like the density. And the, the interiors are at very high pressures and temperatures, right? So you are squeezing things and heating them up. How, so, how generally do you do so, that? So, so that's actually interesting because when you do that for Earth or other um, terrestrial planets, you actually are at high pressures, but you also have high temperatures. The difference with icy moons is that you're still at high pressure, but you're at pretty cold temperatures. So you're below room temperature. So you actually have to cool things down while going at high pressure, which is something that has not been done that much in high pressure science. People tend to go to high pressure and high temperatures, but they haven't been too much in the high pressure, low temperature regime. So that is our specialty, I, I would say. Yeah, That's really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully we'll have you back on Strange New Worlds in the near future to tell us yeah. more about your exciting research. Maybe sure. once you come back from Argonne. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. I'll be happy to do so. <laughs> but today we are going to be talking about wine because uh, we were inspired by the new Star Trek Picard trailer mm -hmm. in which Picard, Jean-Luc Picard, is... In his, in his, what do you call it, a winery? Or? Yeah, yeah, he's uh, his winery, yeah. Yeah, his winery. And we were like, that's really amazing because you know so much about wine. And we went wine tasting together yeah, uh, in yeah, Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we yeah. went to Champion Wine Cellars, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and, a fantastic shop. Yeah, fantastic, <laughs> right? They're, they're going to give you some uh, free wine when they hear this podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> but you're like a celebrity there. Everybody knew who Baptiste was, and it was a lot of fun. And so I was wondering if you could just describe what a wine tasting is and how to properly taste wine to enjoy that experience for those listeners who have never done that before. Yeah, so the idea of a wine tasting actually came after I watched this trailer for this new show. Is, is that a show or a movie? I'm confused. It's a new show. It's a new show, okay. Yeah. So about this new show, and they said that uh, Jean-Luc Picard is from uh, Burgundy, and so I, I was thinking, oh, that would be great to have my come and taste some actual Burgundies and, you know, get uh, more exposed to that. So... That's why I, I invited you there. So for the tasting that we went, the idea is that you have like uh, several wines. So you can either do like a horizontal or vertical uh, tastings. And there is like mixtures between both. But uh, horizontal is when you taste uh, wines from the same year or similar years, uh, but from different either areas or different producers. And a vertical tasting is when you taste the same type of wine, but from different years. So the tasting we did was a horizontal one where we had like different wines from different producers in different areas in Burgundy uh, from roughly the same years, like uh, 2015, 2014, 2016 or something like that. So then like you can have like mixtures between this, but the idea is like when you have a tasting, you usually start with the light uh, whites and then you can go to more like uh, reds and then heavier and heavier bodied usually. And you can end up in very big tasting, you can end up with like digestive or sweet wines or licorice wines. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll talk about what makes a wine a certain way mm -hmm. and how wine growers, wine producers, mm -hmm. wine growers, wine, wine makers, wine makers. Thank you. <laughs> I'm still learning here. I'm still well, a wine. I, I mean, you shouldn't trust me too much with the, uh, with, with the English vocabulary. <laughs> oh. <on> this <laughs> no, I'm sure it's great. Okay. So the wine makers, uh, how they control the different factors that go into mm -hmm. making these wines taste the way that they do. But one thing that I remember learning from you right away was when you swirl the wine, you sort of look at the way it drips off of the side of the glass back into the, yeah. the, the bottom of the glass. You told me to, to look at the number of stems yes. that uh, are descending yeah. down the, the wall of the glass. The stems are just the wine dripping down 
collectively. Yeah. So these are called in English, if I'm right, these are called the legs. Legs. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, the, I misremembered. The, oh, no, 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 no. It's totally fine because in French, it's called the tears. So, you know, like there is like always like this vocabulary that get mixed up. So so these are actually Rayleigh Taylor's instabilities. And I told you that because you're a physicist. <laughs> so I was like, oh, he's going to think it's really cool. Yeah, I, I did think it was really cool. <laughs> but explain what a Rayleigh Taylor instability is. So the, the... So, so the idea is that you have like in a fluid, you have like uh, when you have a density gradient uh, with the higher density uh, fluid on top in the gravity uh, field, you're going to have like forces that are going to push this fluid downwards compared to the rest of the fluid that is at a lower density. And so if the density difference is high enough and the viscosity is low enough, you're going to form like these bubbles that are going to go down. And it's like what you see in convection happening. And so that's exactly what happened here. So when you swirl your wine, you just deposit a film of alcohol solution in your glass. And during evaporation, you actually change the density of the fluid. And so you have the highest density solution that is like getting poor and poor in alcohol while it evaporates that just concentrate at the top and slowly form like this bubble that then like flow down. So this is like a really, really cool thing when you're a physicist to just observe and you like fluid dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> and so it will be, so to get back to the wine thing, the number of legs, the thickness of the legs, the speed at which they're going to form are going to depend on parameters that are, that are going to control the alcohol content and the viscosity. So the higher the alcohol content, the more legs you're going to see. And usually the larger is the viscosity. So the higher the sugar content usually the thicker the legs are going to be. So you can have like a general idea of how high in alcohol your beverage is and how high in sugar it is by just looking at the legs That's without awesome. touching it, which is, I think, <laughs> is really cool. I have no idea how it would behave in a, in a different gravity, though. <laughs> it would be very interesting to figure it out, like, well, you, like on the moon or something. Yeah, you have to do the you... experiment. Go, go up there, right? Please, please send me to the moon, uh, Elon <laughs> Musk, to try to see how many legs form in like uh, wine. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> very good. So another thing that you taught me when we were doing wine tasting is how to properly sip the wine. And you said something about like making the sound and like, oh yeah, you know, oh yeah, slurping so, sound. Oh yeah, so that's so. Just getting back to the tasting procedures, if I may say so. Sure. But the idea is that you usually start by just looking at it because, you know, you want to see, like, for example, the legs. I mean, it, all of this is not mandatory. It's just, like, to, you know, increase the, you know, like, the experience of wine testing. And so, but just for everybody who's listening who's not necessarily really into wine, wine tasting is, and wine in general, is really about enjoying it. It's not about being fancy generally. In France, it's a very popular drink, much more than in the U.S. Like people will go as much to take, uh, you know, like a cheap wine that they go here to get a cheap beer, for example. So really, like it doesn't need to be fancy. So you can everybody can approach it, and everybody should because it's a very nice drink, but with limitations. Mm. Like uh, don't drink too much, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is that once you looked at it, you can look at the color, and then you start with uh, smelling it. Usually, so you take your first smell, and you can swell it a little more, and they take a second smell, a more deeper smell, and so you will have like different notes that appear in the first and the second smell. You can have a third or fourth one if you want to, but the idea is that the more time you spend just observing, smelling, and then tasting it, the more aromas and more complexity you're going to get out of it. And so once you're done with smelling, you can start having a little sip. So you start with a little sip, and then you can just swirling around in your mouth and swallow it. And then just try to get the first feeling of it. And then when you do it a second time, what you can do is actually get a little bit of air in. The idea is that most of your taste of flavor doesn't come from the tongue. It comes from the nose. It comes from olfaction. So you need to activate ritual olfaction to get as much flavor as you can from it. Wow. So the idea of incorporating a little bit of air is that this air that you're going to mix with the wine, then you can blow it through your nose and it, you're going to get like much more flavors out of your tasting when you do that. So the way you can incorporate air, there's two main ways you can just like, I mean, it's going to sound a bit gross, but <laughs> it's like when you are brushing your teeth and you're putting a little bit of um, 
of air bubbles in it and just like uh, inflate your cheeks out. I don't know mm -hmm. how to describe mm -hmm. it. Maybe you have a better way. Uh, no, I think that's that's fair. Yeah, inflating yeah. your cheeks and yeah, and just like swirl, yeah, yeah, and, and but swirl the wine into it, and then you can swallow it and then blow the air through your nose. Uh, so that's the first way. And then there is a second way, which is more like the, <laughs> I don't know if it's the expert's way, but it's always very, always sounds a bit fancy to do it. But the idea is that once you have a little bit of wine in your mouth, you want to breathe a little bit of air and make some bubble into it to just like make more exchange between the air and the wine. Almost if you want to whistle like that. Right. That was the slurping that you told me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But very, very slowly, because if you eat too strongly, you're going to chuck. Because <laughs> you know there is a lot of alcohol coming in as well, sure. so it's you know you 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 have to be um, careful to do it not too strongly, but yeah, and then blow the blow the air through your nose to get as much flavor out of it. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, there's a lot of technique in wine tasting, and I learned a lot of that from you. Well, I learned that from my dad, so I guess you learned <laughs> that from my dad too. <laughs> very good. So, Baptiste, can you briefly summarize the main steps in creating wine, going from those grapes that you've grown in your vineyard all the way to the bottle? The, the bottle. Okay, so the step of winemaking, so it's actually pretty complex and it's also very dependent on the region as well, but I'm going to give a pretty general summary of it and also start to introduce the concept of difference between red and white because that actually happens during of course the wine process and there is like some pretty strong differences so before the harvest there is also like a lot of thought that is coming in uh, when to harvest because the final product is going to depend on the starting amount of sugar and the ph of the grapes when you pick them up because then it's fixed in time So if you want a very a sweet or very heavy wines, you want to want more sugar because later in the fermentation, you're going to get more alcohol out of your sugars. So if you want like more sugar or more sweetness in your wine, you should pick your grapes later in the year. Uh, so that's the first thing. So when you harvest your grapes, you uh, start to do like a first pressing. So it's called the crushing state. And so the crushing is when you just gently press the juice out of the grapes Uh, out of the berries and this is the step that we have seen like you know like in uh, these old pictures where people like putting their feet and crushing the old uh, you know like, like the grapes in a big uh, in a big wood container that's that's the crushing once you've done the crushing you can either leave the skins or the stems with the juice to macerate to so it's called a maceration or you can just extract the juice and go directly to fermentation And so that choice depends on the winemaker, on the types of wine you want to do. But also it depends if you want to get a red or a white. For example, if you want a red, you have to leave the skins and the seeds with the juice during the step, during the crushing. And so you, you need them to do a maceration process because the color of your wine is going to come from the contact between the skins and the juice. Really? Yes. I had no idea. Mm. I always thought that the red wines came from the red grapes no. and the white wines came from like the greenish grapes. Yeah, no, it's it's true. It's true. But like if you would press like, for example, Pinot Noir is probably one of the most red, uh, red wine grape example. If you just take the juice of uh, Pinot Noir, it's going to be a, you know, pretty light white juice out of it. It's going to be oh. yellowish. So if you want to take uh, red out of it, you need to leave the skin in contact with the juice for long enough so the color is just transmitted from the skin to the juice. So that's how you do a red. And so that also means that you can also do white out of red grapes if you take the juice fast enough. Mm, so okay. for example, that's called Blanc de Noir. So white from black. It's a, it's a typical in Champagne uh, because they use a lot of Pinot Noir to do Champagne, even though Pinot Noir is a red white grape. So you can do white wines with red wine grapes. Okay, but can you do a red wine from one of those greenish white grapes? No, you can't because okay. if you leave the skins in contact, there is no pigment mm -hmm. in the skins. Mm -hmm. So the wine is not going to get red. It's going to get more orangish because sometimes there is some pigments, but it will never become red for sure. No. 
And so the idea is that you can also uh, leave like uh, the stems with it to give like, uh, for example, like a more vegetal red bell pepper taste to your wine. But it's really up to the winemaker. This is like their decision and you have, it's very, very complex and they can choose to do it a year or another and sometimes not at all. It really, yeah, it's really up to them. And that's also the moment where you actually extract the tannins. So that's a word that, uh, is very common in wine tasting. It's like the, it's the kind of the bitterness of it, or like the wooden taste of it. So, so tannins is a class of uh, flavor molecule called procyanidin. I hope I pronounced that well in English. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's also found, you know, in uh, apple skin, in green and black tea. So when you have like a over uh, infused black tea or green tea, the bitterness that you feel are tannins. It's exactly the same types of molecules that are present in uh, mostly in red wines. Okay. So it is something that can be uh, looked for in winemaking because it can like, give like a special character to it. But if there is too much, then it starts to be like very hard to drink. So there is a good balance to find. Also, like tannins is also like a, a very strong antioxidant, and so. There is more and more studies that show that antioxidants are actually like this is where the healthy parts of red wine is coming from. It's probably from the tannins. Yeah, my so. dad likes to cite that. He's like, "Yes, I'm having my wine for my health tonight." Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that's probably coming from the tannins. So he could drink tea too. You can tell that to him. <laughs> <laughs> he won't like that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not sure he will. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that was the crushing and so the maceration is when you leave the skin and the juice and the seeds as well so most of the tannins come from the seeds actually the skins mostly give the color the seeds mostly give the tannins and the stems when you leave it with it it can give like these um, an all other class of molecule that have like this uh, vegetal green bell pepper taste so then when you're done with maceration, if you have any, you can do the primary fermentation and that's where you're going to have yeast. They're going to digest the sugar and to produce uh, CO2 and alcohol, so ethanol in that case. So then it's a kind of a complicated process because you need to uh, monitor the temperature and the kinetics of the reaction to make sure that uh, you know you don't go too fast, otherwise you're going to end up with vinegar or it's not too warm, etc. So there is a lot of careful monitoring in this and the idea is that the yeast either come for wines that I say that as natural directly from the skins so when you look at a at a grape that are directly on the vine sometimes there is this little layer of uh, white stuff on it these are actually natural yeast that are growing on the grapes and in small wine producers or like mostly like in Europe, they tend to use the natural yeast to produce, like to do the fermentation. In uh, larger productions or more in the new world, so in, in the United States, but also in South America or Australia, they tend to add the yeast artificially afterwards to uh, control the fermentation better. So there is a whole debate to have about this, but yeah, I'm not going to enter that right now. And the idea is that you get for every two gram of sugar, you get one gram of alcohol. So that gives you an idea, like if you want a 12% wine, you need like 24 grams of sugar per liter. So when you're done with this, uh, you have what we call the cold stabilization where during the fermentation process, you form a lot of different chemicals, but including potassium bitartrates that are also naturally present in, in the juice. And you want to remove it because it has a very not pleasant taste. Uh, so the way you do that is that you take your, your juice and you put it like in... So no, at that stage, you don't have any stems or skins or seeds anymore. And you put it in the big tank and you bring it like to very, very cold temperatures, like close to freezing. It also mimics like the cycle of the year because that's usually correspond to the winter month. So it's kind of convenient. But the idea is that the potassium bitartrate crystals are going to form on the side of the container. And when you take the juice out, the crystals are going to stay on the walls and they're going to be removed. And these crystals are often called like wine crystals or wine diamonds. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the idea is that when you have a bottle that you store at very cold temperature, you can see some of them form at the bottom of your bottle. And these are totally okay. These are not harmful in any way. If anybody have seen like a very cold bottle of wine and see like some crystal at the bottom, that's probably a bit hot, right? At the bottom. And it's harmless, but 
you can remove it too, it's fine. So when you're done with cold stabilization, then you have the secondary fermentation. So you have another fermentation, which is called the malolactic fermentation. And this is like uh, all bulk aging, and it's like taking like three to six months usually. And this is when you put like your wine, because it's already wine, because you already have fermentation with it. So it's already alcoholic, but you put it in like airlock containers. So typically like barrel, you know, that's the typical image that we have of a winery with like barrels everywhere. That's that's that process. That's the secondary malolactic fermentation. Wait, so what were they in when they were doing the primary fermentation? So the primary fermentation is to uh, remove most of the sugar and transform it in CO2 and alcohol. The problem is that if you were doing this directly in the airlock container, uh-huh. they oh. would explode because of the CO2 production. <laughs> okay. People do that for champagne. Baptiste wanted me to clarify that for champagne, the CO2 bubbles don't come from the first fermentation, but from a subsequent additional fermentation specific to champagne, where you add sweet liquor to the mixture and let that get metabolized to produce carbon dioxide gas. This is similar to a step of adding additional sugar in beer brewing. So, yeah, so the idea is that you put this into these containers and uh, this will finish the fermentation process and it will add some extra taste, uh, especially if you age it in like uh, oak barrels. So you can transmit more tannins and more taste from the oak wood directly to the wine. So for someone that's very, very distinct to have this kind of thing. And so the idea of this fermentation is also that you have some lactic acid bacteria that metabolize the malic acid into lactic acid. The problem is like the malic acid has also like a very unpleasant bitter taste. And so to transform it into lactic acid with uh, lactic bacteria, the one that I found like uh, like in milk or yogurt, for example, is that you can uh, remove a lot of this bitterness and also malic acid has actually like more acid radicals than the lactic acid. So by that process, you also increase the pH of your wine. And so you, you, you get it less acidic. And when you're done, when you're done, then you can uh, bottle your wine. And that's it. Usually you wait for another few months or years before actually consume it. But yeah, that's the idea. That's so cool. Yeah. That's a lot of great information. Thank you so much for that summary. <laughs> yeah, lots of great science. And I guess we need to thank our little microscopic friends, the yeast and the bacteria for mm-hmm. helping us make our wine. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. They're doing a fantastic job. And as a French person, I would also would like to thank them for cheese as well. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yes. Wine and cheese usually go together, I guess. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You're very friendly <laughs> with your bacteria over in France. Exactly, exactly. We love our yeast and bacteria. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so in preparation for this podcast, I rewatched the Star Trek The Next Generation episode called Family. And this is the episode where Jean-Luc Picard goes back to his home village in France and visits his brother and his brother's family who are still running the winemaking business. Mm -hmm. And one of the most salient themes of this episode is the dichotomy between Jean-Luc who is very embracing of the future and wants to go and explore the stars versus his brother, Robert, who is very much all about holding on to the past mm-hmm. and continuing the tradition of the Picard family winemaking. And so like in one very memorable scene, they have a big argument over the pros and cons of replacing home cooking with replicator technology, which is basically like a food synthesizer. They can create mm-hmm. food out of atoms and just build things for mm-hmm. you. I guess like very advanced 3D printing or something okay. like that. And and so, you know, winemaking definitely dates back centuries, if not millennia, right? It's very ingrained in, in many world traditions. And a lot of traditional aspects of winemaking have endured to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I, I read this article uh, about this wine, Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. And um, the researchers that studied this wine determined that the genetic material for this particular lineage of wine hasn't changed at all in the past 900 years. Mm-hmm. And they did this by comparing the genetic sequences of the wine that's being grown today and some very ancient seeds that they had dug mm-hmm. up somewhere in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> and And... This means that winemakers have been consciously sort of cloning this Sauvignon Blanc 
plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically they do this by like snipping off a bit of the plant and grafting it into a yes. different mm-hmm. part of the ground. And out of that grows another plant, but yeah. with the exact same genetic material. And this is as opposed to taking the seeds of the grapes and then spreading them about. Yeah, yeah. And I guess 900 years ago, they probably didn't know anything about genetics, mm-hmm. but some very, very intelligent winemaker probably realized that, wait, if I have this really great vine that's creating such wonderful wine for me, if I spread its seeds around, then I leave it up to chance. But if I'm actually doing this process of cutting this vine and then growing another vine from this mm-hmm. particular plant that way, it's always going to be good. It's just yeah. always good. So I should just keep doing it. And yeah. people have kept on doing that tradition for yes. mm-hmm. 900 years, if not more. And so I'm wondering what other traditional aspects of winemaking do you know of that have continued to go on for like 900 years or more? And also now that we're entering, you know, this this age of technology and robots are, you know, taking our jobs, et cetera, you know, do you think that there are any aspects of winemaking that are being changed by modern technology? Oh, yeah, that's a very good question. So there is like many aspects to talk about uh, with this, because like, especially like uh, coming from France, where the tradition has such a weight in everything. And there is very, very good aspects of it. Like, as you were saying, like, we can still try wines from pretty much the same grape as uh, a thousand years ago, which is pretty mind-blowing. Even Pinot Noir is probably like being raised in uh, Burgundy for probably over two or three thousand years because like the first winemaking in France started to appear with the Roman Empire, who started to have like winemaking in the Rhone Valley and in, um, in Burgundy. But so first, about your genetical thing, I would like to say one thing. The last majority of French winemaking now is actually using American roots. Like almost all the roots from which French wines are made are actually from the United States. Why is that? Because, uh, so in the early 20th century, there was a problem with a bug called Phylloxera, who actually came during First World War, if I remember well. And uh, that pretty much killed all the roots, like the oldest stem of the French wine varieties. And so the only way to actually keep all of these beautiful grape types was to actually put them on American roots that were already resistant to phylloxera. Because phylloxera was actually a bug from the United States, was probably brought by some soldiers by some way at the time. So most of the French wine now are grafted mm. from U.S. roots. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, the, and so even if we have the same genetic roots for these wines, the root itself is actually totally different. So it's a pretty interesting thing to know first. So the the other thing about the weight of tradition, I would say, is that in France it has, and in in a lot of places all around Europe, really, if you go to Spain, Italy, uh, and in other winemaking regions, like the weight of tradition is really there, and you can feel it. People have been doing stuff the same way for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so they are very conservative to this, which has good aspects because... People have been doing that for so long that there is so accumulated experiences that it can bring everything to like almost perfection. And But the problem is that that also kills some of the creativity because, uh, for example, in France, we have this thing called the AOC, so the Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée. So it's uh, Appellation of Origin, like Control Appellation of Origins. And this means that if you want to call your wine a Burgundy, it's not just that you have to be in, from Burgundy, you have to be in Burgundy and make your wine with these types of grapes. So if you want a red, that's going to be Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay, for example, for, for red and white Burgundies. Uh, and you have to do it a certain way. If you want to do, for example, Savagnin Blanc or Cabernet Sauvignon in Burgundy, you can, but you cannot call it a Burgundy anymore. <laughs> and you're going to have to call it Vin de France. And Vin de France has a very bad reputation <laughs> because it's usually the wine that don't respect the AOC and are not very high quality wines. So you take a huge risk by getting out of these appellations. So there is good things and bad things about it. But no, nowadays, there is more and more producers that try to get out of this and are totally okay to call their wines in France and do amazing stuff, but they are totally out of the tradition. So it's more exploratory, but that happens now more and more. 
And that's a great segue into the next question that I have. So you spoke about the very strict rules about what you would call a certain wine and that Mm -hmm. you need to be in a certain region and grow it there to call it a certain thing. And so each region has their own little tricks and Mm -hmm. uh, styles Mm -hmm. and traditions. And and that's called terroir. Terroir. Yeah, yeah, that's the actual name for it, terroir. So terroir here, I guess. Okay, okay. (laughs) But the idea is like it's this concept. It's more a concept than an actual thing. (laughs) But the idea is that it's a combination of like tradition, soil, sun exposure, grape type, Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, style of winemaking. So it even goes down to the shape of the bottle. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that you noticed when we watched this Star Trek Picard trailer was that you noticed the shape of the bottle and what that said about the wine. Yes. So can you tell the <laughs> listeners what you noticed about this bottle and uh, what you learned from that? So, yeah. So the idea is that when I saw the trailer, I got excited because, oh, yeah, they're going to talk about wine. That's going to be great. And then I saw the shape of the bottle and... You know, like, I guess, like, a lot of people who are into Star Trek are really, like, nerds, and that's great. I, I'm a nerd myself, but about wine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's this thing where they talk something in the show about something you love so much, but they get, like, one detail wrong, <laughs> and that really puts you off. <laughs> that's exactly what happened, because... Uh, so maybe it's a, there is some educated choice behind it, but the idea is that they actually put... Not a burgundy bottle, but I put a Bordeaux bottle. Mm. Bordeaux. And Bordeaux being like the wine producing area that is like on the west coast, southwest coast of France. So it's really, really far. And this is like the two sister regions that just hate each other. You know, like uh, there's Burgundy and there's Bordeaux and they're not very compatible. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so, Picard does mention in, in the episode family that he's from a village in La Barre. La Barre. La Barre. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in Burgundy? So, yeah. La Barre is, is in the, the Burgundy region. It's not in the Burgundy winemaking region. It's actually pretty far north of oh, it. And it's actually not in any winemaking region right now. So right now in La Barre, there is no wine being made in La Barre. But um, if it was the Burgundy appellation and if La Barre in the future will be like part of Burgundy and if the tradition is kept, you would expect the bottles to be the same shape as the Burgundy from now, okay, so which this... has like a shape that looks like uh, with a pretty large base that is then like straight and that slowly covers uh, back up. When the Bordeaux shape is like the one that is like really straight all the way and has a tight neck at the tip of it. So... I guess like most of the French wine that gets its way here is mostly Bordeaux. So that's why they choose that type of bottle. I don't know. But yeah, you would not expect that for uh, for Burgundy. The other thing that put me off was when you look at the fine print on the bottle, you see Grand Cru Classé. And Grand Cru Classé is a typical appellation for Bordeaux. And it's never used in Burgundy. You would say Grand Cru, Premier Cru, uh, etc. But you never say Grand Cru Classé. Grand Cru Classé <laughs> is definitely Bordeaux. Yeah. So. <laughs> and even though this show takes place roughly 400 years in the future, I mean, people have been making wine for centuries the same way. And I wouldn't expect there would be any kind of tradition Yeah, changing. especially if his brother, Robert, is uh, yeah. very onto tradition. You, know? yeah. you would expect him to actually follow the Burgundy tradition. Exactly, so. <laughs> yeah. So, hmm, that's a little bit fishy. Yeah. But I think there is a way to sort of retcon or explain the fact that Jean-Luc is growing grapes in a region that is not currently making yeah. wine. And so you have a theory about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something we discussed together because, like, uh, you know, uh, global warming is happening. And there is, like, uh, it's really well documented in winemaking, actually, where you have, like, this theoretical limit from red um, to white-only production. So when uh, area is too up north, the weather doesn't allow to do red wines because you need enough sun to make red wines and so burgundy is really at the limit at the northern limit of red wine making really but if you have global warming as it is happening right now you would expect the red wine limit to shift northward and eventually why not arriving in la barre <laughs> and so it is totally believable to me especially with the rate of temperature rising we are seeing 
Like just yesterday, we had like the largest temperature ever recorded in Europe, uh, all over Europe, like over 40 degrees Celsius. How much is it in Fahrenheit? I, don't I know. saw a tweet that it was like 108 degrees. Yeah, Fahrenheit. No, it's insane. It's totally insane. But so, so with that rate of increase of temperature, for me, it's very believable that the Burgundy production could actually migrate northward over like the next decades. Uh, maybe not because people are really attached to the soil, so they would probably do different types, but it's something that is possible that would actually make physically sense to yeah. move northwards. So probably by mistake, the Star Trek writers chose a region of France that is too cold right now to mm-hmm. produce wine. Red but, wines. Yeah. Red wines. Yeah. But we're seeing in the Star Trek future, again, probably by mistake, but it sort of makes sense given the trend of global warming, that yeah. in the future, Earth will be a little bit warmer. Yeah. And so the so the style of wine that you do in Burgundy would have to move northward to find the same climate as there is now, probably. And yeah. that's where Jean-Luc is yeah, Jean-Luc. making his wine. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, so besides the, the temperature, what are the other factors that go into the wine? You've mentioned many times uh, soil. So, mm-hmm. so what are the geological aspects? Oh, yeah. So that's a very debated aspect because like, there's not real strong science behind it, as far as I know. You know, like uh, certain grape types prefer a certain type of soil and if you compare the same grape type on different soil they're going to taste different but that pretty much stopped there uh, as far as i know and so for example if you have like a more like a rich soil like with a lot of clays uh, you're gonna have a very rich very uh yeah very rich wine if you go like to a much poorer soil like more rich in limestone for example you're gonna get something that is like more they call it minerally you know it's uh something a bit drier, uh, a bit more uh, citrusy maybe. But yeah, there is no real science behind it. That's something that overall doesn't have like a very strong basis. But the idea is that the heavier your wine, the more southern you will be and the more rich the soil are going to be generally. Okay. And when I I think of people opening a bottle of wine uh, and then sipping it, and then they start remarking on things about the wine, and they'll eventually mention the year and it was mm-hmm. that it was created. And so when somebody says, "Oh yes, twenty three forty seven, that was a good year," what does that mean? What does it mean to be a good year? Oh yeah, so the that goes back to the tradition part of it, actually. So the idea is that because you have natural yeast, you use natural yeast and not artificial yeast, and you know you don't control the amount of sugar. Because a lot of big uh, production actually adds sugar to actually control the level of alcohol. But if you let everything happen naturally, like having the yeast naturally growing on the grapes and having the amount of sugar being controlled by the uh, climate that you get, or like the weather that you get one year, then from a year to another, the chemical mixture that makes the starting point of your wine is going to be very different. And so... A year to another, you can have same grapes, same place that can be very different. And that is something that is very deep-rooted in European culture. It's like a year from one year will never taste the same as a wine from another year. Here in the U.S., that's not as common. I would say it's pretty rare to find winemakers that are actually trying to have this yearly expression because they're more interested in large volumes so they try to control the taste so it's reproducible from year to another. Mm. But when you let nature do its job, then you can have like some very complex stuff happening from a year to another. So uh, 23... 23.47. So 23, uh, 23.47 might be very, you know, very, very different from uh, 23.48. Uh, <laughs> no, but it is. Like, for example, uh, 2015 and the 2016 are very different in Burgundy. Mm. And... If you're a very talented taster, you can actually tell the difference. And that's very impressive. Yeah. And if I just may add something for some of your uh, listeners that you know are interested in, uh, in all of this, I would really advise when you pull a bottle of wine, especially red, wait for half an hour or even more, an hour, before you start to drink it. That's going to change everything. Because when you open your bottle of wine, there's going to be like a lot of chemical reaction that are going to happen, including some oxidation and the maximum potential of the taste and the wine drinking is not going to happen right after opening. It's going to happen like half an hour to an hour, generally for reds. For whites, it's not as true. Like whites, you can drink pretty much straight away. 
but just ask to a small wine shop to help you. They usually are pretty good to give advice on it. But wait for red wines. It's very important. <laughs> That's a great tip. <laughs> I will use that yeah. to good effect. Please. Going back to the years, Picard actually is sipping this wine, and he thinks it's a 2346, yeah. and then Robert gets really mad at him. He's like, it's a 2347. Okay. You've lost your touch. <laughs> um, Clearly. Uh, but, yeah. So they were drinking it, though, in the year 2367, which yes. means they waited 20 years. Oh, yeah. yeah. So why do you wait that long, and is that typical? So it's not typical. It really depends on if the wine is designed to be aged. You have to design the wine from the start to be aged. You can't take any wine and just age it. It's going to get better. It doesn't work that way. So there is some regions and some producers that are known to do wine with aging potential. And so that's what you have to go for if you want to age it. So apparently, Robert Picard is doing a wine with aging potential. Like 20 years is pretty good. Yeah, pretty good burgundies you can usually drink in like 20, 30 years later. Mm. Uh, maximum 30 years, yeah. For red wines, it's kind of the maximum. After that, they kind of decay. But uh, yeah, if, if you want to age a wine for more than three, four years, you should definitely ask to someone who has tried it and knows the potential of aging because that is, yeah, it's a very complex matter. And uh, it takes like a bit of instinct and identification of which producer and region to buy. So what would you say is the most important factor that determines a wine's aging potential? I would say from as far as I know that the amount of acidity and tannins are going to actually control how well the wine is going to age. Uh, so typically a wine that has like a pretty strong acidity being young and good tannins are actually has a pretty good aging potential because over time the amount of sugar is going to decrease the amount of acidity is going to decrease and the amount of tannins is going to decrease but it has to be made in that way uh, there could be wines that actually have like medium sugars or low sugar high acidity and high tannins that are going to not age well at all so <laughs> it has to come from someone who knows how to do it the Exception to this are very sweet wines like Sauternes, which are like uh, another type of wine we talked about where they actually let the grape rot on the vines themselves before picking them up to extract as much sugar out of it. The idea is that some very, very sweet wines can age amazingly well for much more than 30 years. Like a Sauternes from 100 years, you can still drink it, and that's fabulous. Okay, I have just one last question for you, and it has nothing to do with wine. Okay. But since you are a geophysicist, yes, I thought I would ask you about something that happened in the episode Family. So Jean-Luc's visiting home, and an old friend comes to visit him. This friend is trying to recruit him to his new project mm -hmm. that is called the Atlantis Project. Mm -hmm. And... He wants Jean-Luc to help out with some of the scientific aspects of raising the ocean floor to create a new sub-aerial landmass on Earth. Mm -hmm. And Picard is actually very excited about this possibility because it would let us explore a brand new world right here on Earth. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that we don't know about the ocean mm -hmm. floor. But Picard has some concerns about how his friend is going to actually accomplish this without completely screwing up the stress on all of the other tectonic plates yeah. on our planet. So I was just wondering, what do you think about so, this idea? Yeah, that sounds pretty crazy. So can you repeat <laughs> me how they think to raise the level? They didn't go into it in very much detail. Yeah, because that's going to be like the main factor that... So they, they said that they're going to raise the plates, like the oceanic plates at the surface. Yes, it's unclear to me what extent this will happen. But I, I suspect what they want to do is raise a non-negligible area of oceanic crust to the surface. That sounds, that sounds not possible to me. Because <laughs> oceanic crust is very thin compared to continental crust. It's much denser. Mm -hmm. So to actually bring it up there, you would have to pile a lot of not very dense material to just make sure that it doesn't you know, uh, flow uh, on the side to just compensate the hydrostaticity of the mantle. I'm not really sure how they're going to do it. Seriously, <laughs> like this seems like really hard to me. And you can already find uh, oceanic crust above the surface. So mm. I'm not really sure. Plus, like, if you bring all that material up, like, you, you're going to kill any life that's, you know, adapted to the depth. And 
you know, why not going to see it in situ? That's that's better now. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's right. If you could build spaceships in the 24th century to go all around the galaxy, you surely can build a submarine to go and see these things whenever you want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that would be more interesting to actually go see them there than... I'm not really sure how they would do that, seriously. That, 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 that doesn't seem realistic to me at all. <laughs> I should well, watch the episode. Maybe there are some clues. Well, I think uh, you and Jean-Luc are of the same mind because he decided not to be swayed by his friend and decided to go back to his old job, yeah. captaining the Enterprise and exploring yeah. strange oh, new good. worlds. So thank with a you good s- bottle of wine. <laughs> with a good bottle of wine, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds, Baptiste. It was an absolute pleasure to yeah, learn about amazing. wine from you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me uh, talking about all that stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was great. I have to say, thanks to Baptiste, my knowledge of wine, winemaking, and wine tasting has increased tremendously. And I hope that you were able to take away some interesting new facts about wine, or, at the very least, enjoyed 45 minutes of his beautiful French accent. In coordination with the hype about Star Trek Picard, CBS has launched a new Chateau Picard wine series, priced at $60 a bottle. You can find the link in the show notes. It goes without saying that as soon as I read that announcement, I sent the details of that wine to Baptiste for his appraisal. And he said, unfortunately, that wine is probably only worth about $33 a bottle. But hey, I'd pay $27 just to have a bottle with the Chateau Picard label on it. A label, by the way, which is different from the one in the trailer and more consistent with the shape of the bottle which should put Baptiste to ease. You can follow Baptiste on Twitter at B underscore Jour. That's B underscore J-O-U-R. And me at MikeY. That's M-I-Q-U-A-I. Coming up on Strange New Worlds, episodes from my summer travels. First, the Sagan Exoplanet Workshop then the Star Trek Las Vegas convention, and finally, the Extreme Solar Systems Conference in Iceland, also known as whatever planet Michael Burnham is going to crash on at the beginning of Star Trek Discovery Season 3. Until then, cheers, and I'll see you out there.